So we're going to move into um, Numbers 27 now in this ongoing study. And <clears throat> Numbers, we're getting into, or we've gotten into the second part of the book. So Israel, first think about what happened back in chapters 1 through 4 of Numbers. So think all the way back to January. We started with lists of the census and organizing the camp. And then after that, there was about probably 10 or so chapters of preparing then to move into the promised land, followed by rebellion. And after everything was set up and ready and God's army was ready to march, God's army said, no, we're not going to go. And so God then, through those cycles of rebellion that continued to spiral, God said, okay, you're not going to go. Your kids are, but you're out. And so we saw that whole generation die off in disobedience. And the disobedience got all the way to Moses. Even Moses disobeyed God. Even Moses rebelled against God. At the incident in chapter 20 when he struck the rock, we saw how that wasn't just a flippant, frustrated gesture, but that, that was actually a usurping of God's authority. And every leader in the nation had succumbed to this uh, rebelling in some way, some complete rebellion and then some partial rebellion, and all of them paid the penalty for it. And there are only two people that we know of in the book that did not rebel, and that's Caleb and Joshua. So those are the only two people in the book of Numbers that have not in some way rebelled against God. And so now we're in their, that next generation, and the first generation has died, the second generation, the second army has been called up. That's what the census in the last chapter was. And the second uh, generation of the priesthood has been put, set aside. That's what the Levites and their census was in the last chapter. So everything's ready again. It's like they're getting another chance. And before they go, gonna, the, the ne these chapters will unfold just like the first one did in the sense of there's the census, and there's going to be preparation for entering the land. So they're going to talk about things like when you get in the land, this is what will happen. When we go on the move, this is what will happen. There's, there's a forward-looking gaze in these uh, closing chapters of Numbers, which we're coming to. And God, uh, through Moses, is going to recapitulate these themes to this generation. And then, before he dies, Moses is going to gather all of the people together, and he's going to give them the Torah, give them the commandments, the law, one more time. He's going to give them the law a second time. And the way, word for second is um, deutero, and the word for law is namas, and that's where we get Deuteronomy from. The whole book of Deuteronomy will be him giving them, not in legal form, but in pastoral preaching form, the, the essence of the Torah. So Deuteronomy then will, will, will telescope all of the events of, of, that we've read about from Exodus till now into Moses' final farewell speeches to his people. And then he'll die and Joshua will take over and lead them into the land. So that's where we are in this setting. And <clears throat> right after the census, the census was to, to uh, apportion the tribes and to keep the identity of the tribes. Tribal identity was incredibly important to Israel. Not just their, their identity as Israelites, but their identity as Israelites of the tribe of whoever, Judah, you know, Dan, Naphtali, Manasseh, whatever tribe you belong to. And even within that, of the clan of such and such. 
So that's how, this was your, your citizenship in Israel. We talked about that a little bit, how, you know, we're Americans, and then we're North Carolinians, and then we're Charlotteans, you know, three levels of belonging. And then within Charlotte, we're Steel Creek or Noda or, you know, South Park or Plaza Midway, whatever your neighborhood is. Um, South Carolina don't count. You guys are, you guys are sneaking in on our territory. No. <laughs> so there's... <laughs> <laughs> no respect. Um, you do get the Panthers. They're just Carolina Panthers, so they're for both. Uh, no, but that's, that's how identity worked in Israel. And so it was important that you preserved, when you think of your family in Israel, it's not just your immediate family. It's your family community, your clan. And we don't really have that in America. Even those of us that are big on our family, you know, the ones, that, the ones of you that go to family reunions where you get t-shirts, Right? Like you're big on family. But even that, it's people that you kind of know and you kind of don't. There's, there's, families just become uh, spread out in our country because we're a mobile society. Well, when you're an agrarian society, for instance, three generations always live under one roof. I mean, that's the norm, usually up to four generations in one family compound or village or whatever. Now, if you're not out of the house by the time you're 18, you're seen as slack. You know, that's unheard of in the ancient world. That would have been very bizarre. Why would you, I mean, yeah, you, you leave your mother and father to marry and become one flesh, but then you bring your wife into your family. And, and so families had these, you know, sons and daughters, uh, they, would, they would form or grow or shape the family through marriages and through inheritance. So your, your wealth, your land would get passed on to the next generation, but it was still seen as the family's land. So it was like the family farm that gets passed on for generations and then a developer comes in and says, I'll buy it. And then everybody around is kind of outraged. Like, no, this is the family farm. Like, you, yeah, you legally can buy it, but it, it doesn't mean the same thing because it's been in the family for so long. Well, that's very rare even in our society today. It's much more common in the ancient world, your family, where you come from, who you are. So we read this account right at the beginning, after the census has been given, after the offices have been laid out. Now there's going to be a case where these five women are going to come forward because there's a problem. This uh, old generation that died out, not all of them had male heirs to carry on that family name. So when you married, and, and our culture has vestiges of it, when you marry the, the woman usually uh, takes the husband's name and they become a family known by that name. Now it's not universal. I actually have two students uh, from Pakistan and, and Afghanistan and they don't, the women don't take the names of the last uh, of the husbands in Pakistan and Afghanistan. They actually keep their words. So brothers and sisters and they have different last names. The daughter's named after her mom's last name, the son's after the son's last name. It's pretty interesting. You just, who knew? But um, in, in this ancient Near East culture, it was patrilineal. It was you, your inheritance and everything passed through the male, uh, the heirs and the offspring came through the lines of the males. So the problem would arise then, what if somebody doesn't have any male children? What if they only have females? And that's exactly what we read. Chapter 27, verse 1, the daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh. So that's giving his lineage and his place in the tribe, this tribe of Manasseh belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. 
They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly and said, now the verb that said they approached is actually, it's the word they drew near and it's the words used for most of the time people bringing something to the tabernacle or bringing their offerings or something having to do with officially coming forward. So it's not like they just walked by the, the, the entrance or they found somewhere that was crowded. This is a legal, ceremonial, official entreaty that they're going to do. They, are, they draw near to the elders at the entrance of the tabernacle. And the entrance of the tabernacle would be like city hall today. In cities, it was considered the gate of the city. That's where judgments took place. That's where rulings were given. Well, they don't have a city. They're camped in the desert. The entrance to the tabernacle. This is where, if you remember the example of Phineas a few weeks ago, when the man, uh, Cosby, uh, the Midianite woman Cosby was taken by the man um, into the very presence of God, he took her right to this same spot, the entrance of the tent. So this is an official thing. That's why that crime was so uh, heinous in God's eyes, because it was open and official and defiant. So she comes to him excuse me, these five daughters come to the officials and they make a formal um, inquiry. They said, our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord. Now Korah's followers, remember, they banded to take Moses' authority or to usurp his authority and God supernaturally judged them and swallowed up the people in Korah's congregation. The, the, the Korah's team were all... Um, gone down to the grave alive. And so the women are making clear, our dad wasn't among those. He wasn't one of those rebellious Israelites. But he died for his own sin and left no sons. Now, just like all the Israelites in that generation, they died for their own sin. In other words, they don't negate his guilt. They're not like our, our father was a, a great righteous man and everything he did is fine. No, they recognize He's part of that previous generation. They're the next generation. They recognize that that generation failed and he did die in the desert for his sins because he was part of the overall Israelite community that rejected the promise of God to go into the land. God said, I've given you land. Go take it. They said, no, we're not going to go. And then we, they decided we're going to find a leader that will replace Moses and take us back to Egypt. Those are the people or the sins of the people in general. Korah's sin within that was a particular seizing of authority on the part of him and his family. So it's really interesting. These women, they come and they give a pretty balanced account. Like, yes, our dad, he was part of, he died for his own sin, but he left no sons. And then they go on to say, why should our father's name disappear from this clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. Now it's interesting because there's no property. They're in the desert. They're in, they're in Moab, Midian area. There's, th th this is, they are assuming that they will have inheritant land, that the tribes will receive this land, and that it will go within the families as the previous census listed. That is not an assumption that the previous generation shared. I mean, they are, these five women are actually exercise, the commentators talk about, they're exercising very strong faith to the point where they're saying, hey, this is a certainty. We are going to inherit this land, but because our father died and, and we don't have a brother, it's going to pass, our family won't get anything. And our father's, our lineage will pass out of existence. And that was one of the worst fates imaginable 
in the ancient Near East. So they realize God has promised this, and so they... Now, this is not name it and claim it, all right? It's not like they're wanting to materialize this. They're going to think about it, and through the secret, the universe will give this to them, manifest their thoughts. None of that garbage. It's not that. This is very much God gave a promise and said this is going to happen and has told his people about it. And they've for a generation been in the desert looking forward to the day when they're going to enter this land after their parents had blown it. So now these five women are doing God the favor or the service of taking him at his word. But they're also realizing but when this happens, we're going to be left out because society right now is ordered in a way that, that we're going to get overlooked. So they take this to Moses and they request, hey, give us inheritance. Give us property rights. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Verse 5, because this is unprecedented. In other words, in, in, in the law so far, inheritance goes through the father's house and this is just a new experience. Hey, what do we do with this? A new situation arise. And the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So new case law appears now in response to this situation. The overall concern is not for personal rights. The women are not saying, hey, give us this inheritance because we're just as good as you boys. I mean, that's, not, uh, that's true, but it's not what motivated them. What they said was, give us this inheritance because our family name will pass out of history if we don't have this. So they're being motivated not for greed, not for a desire for, you know, give us a piece of the pie, but for the preservation overall of their clan and their family lineage within that clan. So it's different than just, hey, you know, gimme, 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 you know, I want this, or I want a bigger inheritance, or we want this. It's, and it's not even at its core about women's rights, and the, because other ancient Near East cultures, women could inherit. Babylonian, Sumerian, Egyptian, all of those have instances in, in their laws of women being able to inherit property. So it's not like this is just, whoa, what are you talking about, ladies? That's crazy. You know, there's precedence for it in the ancient world, though it wasn't the norm. And this is showing here, at least, these women are, are coming forward and they're, they're basically claiming this right. And Moses is unsure, and so he takes it to the Lord. And God says, no, what they're saying is right. It's just. It's the right thing to do. And not only are you going to do it for them, we're going to do it for everyone to whom this would apply. Because when we get into the land and start divvying it up, it's going to be important because the land is going to be for each of the tribes, for their identity, because all of it is pointing forward to my ownership of the land and Israel as my stewards in that land. So, so all of this is what's tied into these Old Testament land issues. And this section then will get realized in Joshua 17, I think, uh, is when it'll actually happen, when they do get into the land. After Moses has died, the women will get the inheritance and it will be in the name of their father who had passed away. So their family line continues and, and they aren't forgotten or cut off from their people. So then, in contrast to someone who 
looks forward to being in the land. Now we flip the script to someone who was looking forward to being in the land, but will not get to be in the land. And that's actually Moses himself. Because it goes on to say, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain in the Abiram range and see the land I have given the Israelites. Not the land I've given you. Moses is not going to inherit this land. God's going to let him see it. Moses will give an account of this, this in Deuteronomy 3, and we'll find out, we'll read a, a more personal account of what he was feeling. And you'll actually sense a bit of bitterness in Moses during this uh, moment. But it says, go up this mountain range in the um, Abarim range and see the land. That's about a 10-mile journey, by the way, from where they are. God's not saying, hey, go walk up on that hill. He's saying, 10 miles that way is this mountain range, and there's a mountain there, and you can see the land from there. Go there. So 10 miles. That's a pretty long journey, especially for someone who's over 100 years old at this point. Uh, verse 13, after you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of sin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of sin. That's the event of chapter 20. So God's, even Moses, even for Moses, there's consequences to his sin. The higher the leadership, the higher the consequences for the lower amount of infractions. All right? So a higher authority is held to a higher standard, and that's a good thing. That's how it should be. When people, in, when pastors, preachers, evangelists, presidents, when they do things or say things that your buddy down the street or your friend next door would do or say, there's a higher degree of scrutiny for a reason. They are held to a higher standard. Leaders are held to higher standards, and, and that's everywhere in Scripture. James says it, chapter 3, verse 1, James, Jesus' brother, said, hey, not everybody, not, all, not many of you should be teachers. Those of you who teach will be held to a higher standard. So we see Moses, the, the, the prophet par excellence, the one who talks to God face to face, as the text says. Even for Moses, when there is sin in the, uh, how he rebelled against and, and profaned the name of God, in front of all the people, it wasn't like Moses just got mad at God and they had it out in an argument you know, somewhere on their own. In an official capacity, in front of the people, on a national stage, Moses defamed the name of the Lord. And there was a price to pay for that. And so even now in this, and this Moses not going into the land is really hard for a lot of people to accept. And even myself, when I read it, I'm like, God, I mean, all he did was hit a rock. After, you know, 80 years of leading your people, um, give or take, like surely, you know, the punishment should fit the crime. But his position, he was the one who stood with God in the fire, in the storm, on the mountain. He was the one who God spoke face to face, mouth to mouth, as the text says. If anyone should be held to a higher standard, it would be the one who's had the closest communion with God. And so it's even, we don't have to like it, but we need to at least see the reasoning behind it and what God is doing. And it should cause us a little bit of fear and trembling if we're in positions of leadership whether it's a manager at your office or a chef in the kitchen or, or anywhere that you have people under you, particularly if you're in ministry, there should be a sense of trepidation. There should be a sense of righteous. Um, my behavior should be held to a higher standard. And, and the higher we are elevated in a society leadership role, the higher that standard should be. 
And, and so we don't want to mitigate that. When somebody in authority does something boneheaded, you, know, you don't necessarily have to pile on them, but you do need to say, hey, yes, you are held to a higher standard. Your words are different than so-and-so's words down the street or at the bar. And, and that's, that's all part of it. And so Moses says to the Lord, this is after God said, go look, but you're not going to see it. Moses says to the Lord, May the Lord God of the spirits of all mankind, or Hebrew could also say God of the uh, breaths of all flesh, the same word. So whether he's talking about spirit or breath, there's not a distinction too much in the Hebrew of that. Um, May God, Lord God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So Moses' concern, at least in this moment, is, okay, I'm not going to be there. God, at least get, send somebody else. I know these people. I've shepherded these people. Moses was a shepherd, remember, for 40 years before he ever said, let my people go. So he knows what it's like leading sheep in this same wilderness area. And he, he doesn't want the people, this new generation. Yeah, the people who were, you know, he's like, oh, the people were grumbling and greedy and he still wants blessing for them. Yeah, that's true, but that generation is dead. This is the new generation. These are the kids Moses raised in this wilderness. And he doesn't want them to be helpless without a leader. And he's not going to be the leader. And God hasn't really mentioned anything about somebody else yet. And so he asked God, hey, will you, since I'm not going to go there, can you, Appoint somebody to take care of these people. We don't want them to be like sheep without a shepherd. It's a powerful passage. In Matthew 9, I think, Jesus looks on the crowds and it said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He wasn't making that up. The same spirit that Moses had looking at the people without a leader, Jesus sees it in his own day, in his own people who are also in the wilderness, so to speak, with Rome ruling over them and in need of a Messiah, in need of a leader. So there's a lot of reasons why Jesus would view the crowds through this uh, numbers imagery. But, uh, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, or is, in whom is spirit, or is breath. The NIV, original NIV says, uh, t- Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, The NIV 2011, the updated one, actually added the words of leadership. So the spirit of leadership to try to distinguish what he's talking about from the actual Holy Spirit. And there's a debate amongst translators whether Moses is saying here, Joshua is a man full of the Spirit, capital S, like filled with the Spirit, which makes him unique in the ancient world at this time. Or if Moses is just saying Joshua, a man in whom there's spirit, like leadership spirit, spirit of of vigor and and of leading the people and just everything that we know about Joshua, he's got spirit. Uh, So it could be either or. It doesn't make a huge amount of difference because uh, we're going to say, take Joshua son of Nun and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. And that verb commission is the verb command. Command him in your presence. Uh, When you're commissioned for something, you're commanded for it like there's a command given if you're commissioned as a leader you have commands that you follow it doesn't mean you give all the commands from then on it means you're under command as well so and then he says verse really interesting verse 20 give him some of your authority 
the Hebrew word hod. It's only used elsewhere. This is the only time it's used in the Pentateuch. There may be one other instance, but the majority of times this word is used, it's used in the Psalms, and it's translated as majesty. And it's talking about God or the king and their majesty, their splendor. So that, that yeah, there's authority because it's God, but majestic authority, awe, some of your, your reputation that Moses has had, give him some of that. In other words, let everybody see this is the man who's taking my place, and so how you treat him is how you would treat me. So give him some of your majesty, authority. So the whole Israelite community will obey him. He's to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. That's military language. They'll go out and they'll come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest in the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. This would become practice in later Jewish tradition among rabbis to ordain a rabbi. Um, you would do simichah, you would lay hands on, and then that, of course, carried into the New Testament practice of laying hands on to commission and ordain someone as an apostle or as an elder or, or whatever. But it's, 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 this is an interesting passage because we're in this transition of leadership and the one who's going to command the armies of Israel, the one who's going to speak uh, and Israel will obey, the one who's going to continue on what Moses has started is this guy Joshua. And um, he, he's going to embody sort of the military aspect of Moses, what until Moses now was, was more of a prophetic aspect. Joshua is not a prophet. Um, he's not going to speak to God face to face. He's going to inquire of Eliezer, and Eliezer will answer him through the Urim. The Urim and the Thummim were the things that were kept in the priest's breastplate, and that's how people would inquire of the Lord. So Joshua will not be on the caliber of leader as Moses was. Moses is a unique individual in the history of Israel. And Moses will promise in Deuteronomy 18, one day God will raise up a prophet like me, and he'll do things, listen to him. And that'll happen, but it'll be years and years and years and years later. But his name will also be Joshua as well. We'll just know him as Jesus. So things are going to get interesting now as Israel's making its final preparations to move into the land. And next week then we're going to look at a, a, a rehashing of some of the things that they have to do once they're in the land. But we're out of time now. So have a great week and we'll see you next time.